need some power out of this thing to get the response I'm looking for. I was saying happy Easter early, and Mama Vera was like, you know, that's after a fertility god or something like that. I'm like, I don't know this stuff. It just feels like Easter to me. Uh, but happy, happy Resurrection Sunday. Uh, an extra special happy Resurrection Sunday to any guests or first-timers. Um, welcome to the Ark. Uh, there was a couple of people, not not just one, through communion that were kind of like coming up and not used to dipping the gluten-free bread into the grape juice. <laughs> Let the gluten-free and the grape juice side of that settle in because um, uh, of different church traditions. So uh, if that feels different to you in any way, no problem on our side. Like, you know, it uh, it all works. We're all celebrating the uh, the body broken and the blood shed. And so welcome, if, uh, if this is your first time. My name is Ryan Longfield. My wife and I are the senior pastors of this church. Uh, she is home sick. She's been sick for about a week now. Um, she got hit with some gnarly flu and has been down and out. But we're praying resurrection life into her that she will eventually rise from that bed. Because it's been, it's, been, it's been a while, man. All right. Cool. Well, I would love to just start in prayer uh, as we pray uh, for this, as we go into this time, um, I was instructed to have a shorter sermon today so that we can do fun things on the lawn, and uh, and I'm going to try to bite off a pretty hefty hefty task here in a short amount of time. So let's just pray that the Lord uh, does His will. Father, we give you this time, and God, I thank you even that on the earth you only had three years of doing ministry and you changed the world. And so, God, I pray that you would change lives in the 30 minutes that we have allotted here. God, I pray that it would be powerful, it would be to your glory, and it would be to the freedom of the people on this earth that you long to set free. We celebrate your resurrection. God, thank you that you were not only just the lamb, but you were also the roaring lion who tore your way out of that grave in glory and power. And so we celebrate you as the one who conquered death who prevailed, and show, sh you showed that truth will triumph in the end. And so we give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. No more? Okay. So I wanted, to, I wanted to talk about the significance of Easter, of course, because it's Easter. Oh, Resurrection Sunday. Sorry, Mama. Sorry about the significance of Resurrection Sunday on... Uh, what other people, not me, refer to as Easter. Uh, and I wanted to do so by starting out by panning kind of far out. I think sometimes it's uh, the best way to find out the significance of a moment is to pan out and kind of look at the broader picture and then descend back into that moment. And so I wanted to talk about kind of God's broader master plan. And then I wanted to talk about the resurrection as a piece of that broader master plan. Because all of this that we see around us is the evidence of a very intentional God. Like this, this right here, not, I mean, not this church, but like outside of these walls and this church, this isn't by accident. Like this doesn't just blast into existence. You look at the way that the world's created, you look at the way humans operate, you look at the universe and the way it operates, it speaks to the glory of God. It speaks to the nature of God. It speaks to his nature in that he's incredibly powerful, right? If you study 
the attributes of the sun, for example, and how much energy is coming out of this kind of like burning mass of gas, you start to go like, wow, there's a God who spoke this stuff into existence and it blasted in all directions and it's still going at the speed of light in all directions. Like there is a powerful being whose words can do that. Right, and then you look down into the smallest cell, or in biology, you get down to the smallest level that we know how to go down to, and there's like ridiculous, incredible complexity that we didn't know about for the majority of human history, but now through the, the great works of science, we know. And you back out and you say, what does that say about God? And you say, wow, he is incredibly smart. He is incredibly detailed. He's incredibly intentional. He is incredibly orderly. And things like this don't happen without intention behind them. There's so many of God's invisible attributes that show up in all of creation. And this is very intentional. What God meant to do was he meant to show who he is through the things that we see in creation. In fact, in Genesis chapter 1, in the very beginning of all of this stuff, we see this account where God was being very intentional in terms of creating man and woman in his image. So that word in his image, it means in his likeness, right? It means like him. It means that when we look at each other in the way that we function, that if we see with the right eyes and if God gives us eyes to see, what we're able to see is that we are created in the image of somebody who's incredibly beautiful and we can see even his attributes in one another. Now, if we think about what else we saw in that kind of original account of God creating the universe, and we look through it again to the other side, what we see is a God who's incredibly loving, who wanted to share the best of who he was, his nature, with those around him, with his creation. And so what he does is he speaks into existence the, the humans, the, the people, and says, I'm going to make you in the best thing that I know how to make, and that's in my image. And I'm going to put you in this amazing place that's perfectly crafted for you, to the place where when you eat food, it's going to be delicious. Right? When you lay in the sun and it shines on your face, it's going to feel nice, and it's going to give nutrients into your body. When you drink ice-cold water, it's going to be nourishment to your soul, and your body is going to be made up of this water, and it's going to be made in a way to consume those things and digest them and make you thrive. Like, all of this is in God's plan, because what he wanted to do was create a spot for those made in his image where they could thrive and they could participate in the things that he does. So if you think about who God is who we see him to be from the very beginning, we see this being who wants to create us in the best image that we can be, which is in his image, and then have us participate in the very things that he participates with in a place that's tailor-made for us to thrive. That's an incredible starting point. And one of the analogies or one of the, the metaphors that I've heard to, to speak of, like, why would God want to do something like this, is if you've ever been in a situation where you have something that's so good with another person, like, you have something that just gives you life and gives you, like, joy, and it makes you feel amazing, what usually the natural response is, is that you want to share it with somebody else. 
So like if you have ever seen a great movie and you've experienced something that did something for you, you come out of it and you're like, oh my gosh, like I want to tell my friend about this thing. Or you go on a trip and you're like, man, this experience I had was so amazing and you want to share that out. Or in the, in the context of like a marriage, you have this amazing relationship with this other person and what do you want to do? You want to build a family where it's reproduced. And so in all of those different ways, what we see is love and the best of God is not something that stays confined. Love by its very nature pushes out. It doesn't stay confined. It's not like, oh, I'm so blessed and I just keep that blessing. That is contrary to God's nature. And we see that in the very first part of creation. With what, with what he does here. He was doing just fine on his own without us. <laughs> he didn't need all of us. He did it because love shares. Love experiences the blessing of love, and it pushes out with power and with creative ability. And so we see us. We see God's dream manifesting around us in a way where he wanted the world populated in a way where we're thriving because creation was created for us and we're thriving because we are made in his image and we're thriving because we were designed in a way to feed off of God's very personhood. We were designed in a way to thrive because we are in constant connection with our creator. And so oftentimes I'll feel like, for myself, today was one of these days, man, but I'll talk to people, and there'll be kind of what feels like an unsettledness inside. Or there'll be this thing that, like, can't quite get to a place of full joy. Can't quite move past this feeling of just, man, this, this life and what it has to offer just ain't doing it for me. And what we oftentimes do is we say, oh, well, that's because I don't have the friends that I want. Or, oh, that's because I don't have the finances that I want. Or I don't have the job that I want. Or I don't have the whatever that I want. And I'd say there's a larger thing that's being spoken to there that has to do with the way that you were created that what we experience now in the reality that we live in now, because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we have all done wrong in ways in our life, and we have all at times turned against him. And because the world is in a fallen space where humanity has consistently chosen against him, there's a separation from God that we experience. And that inner dissonance, that inner thing that I just articulated very briefly, but is oftentimes very deep and very profound, that actually at its core is a calling out and an evidence of who you were created to be. And that is one that's in connection with your creator in a deep and profound way. You weren't created to live in this world like we are right now in a way that's disconnected from our God. 
And it shows up in so many different ways. And as we start to read the account of human history, and if we look at the account of history right now, what we see is, man, we do not do very well when we're disconnected from our Creator. We don't do very well at all. Once, once you know, the, the, the first people after Adam and Eve were Cain and Abel, what happened? One of the brothers killed the other brother out of jealousy. That's generation one. It didn't take very long, right? And so what we see from the very beginning is like, wow, humanity disconnected from our Savior is not a pretty sight. Disconnected from our God, disconnected from our life source, disconnected from his original intention. And so when you see Adam and Eve, and then you see Cain and Abel, and then you see down the line consistently humanity choosing away from God to the point where in the, in the account of Noah and the flood, God looks down on the earth and he's like, there's just wickedness through and through. The whole thing, all I see is dramatically in opposition to what I intended this whole thing to be. Like, imagine this from God's angle where he creates this whole thing and has this dream for what it can be and then watches it completely go sideways and then one after another people choose away from God to the place where he looks at the entire earth populated and he's like, this thing is just pure wickedness. Even though God's invisible attributes are everywhere around us and everywhere to be seen, like, look at this thing. And so what we see even throughout history up to the Jewish people being chosen as the people of God, do you know why the Jewish people were chosen as the people of God? It's because God needed a remnant of people that would dedicate themselves to his name. He found Abraham, a guy named Abraham, and this guy was righteous because he believed God. God gave him a promise, and he said, I believe you. And at that moment, it was credited to him righteousness. God's like, I found one. Like, I found, the, I found one, yes. And then out of Abraham, this lineage of people came, and it was the Jewish people, and God's like, oh man, like, maybe I can have a people in my, create, in my created purpose to actually fulfill what my heart's original intention was, which is to have a people that would just love me and realize that I know better than them and therefore submit to the things that I say are good and, and push away the things that I say are evil and, and really set themselves apart from this crazy world and, and just give themselves to me and I'll give myself to them. I'll be their king. They'll be my people. It'll be amazing. It'll be closer to the thing that I originally designed. And then we see the history of, of the Jewish people where they kind of go in this like roller coaster ride with God, where they end up in really hard times and they end up calling out to God, oh my gosh, we need you, we need you. God gives them prosperity. They turn away from him. They go back down into the pit and it's like rinse and repeat. It's over and over again. And what we see in the story of the Jewish people is that we call out for God when we dramatically need him and we forget about him when we don't anymore. You know, like, that is, like, that is obviously, you know, a lot of years of history oversimplified. But, man, it is just this up and down thing. 
But, but if you think about God's heart in that, what he's trying to do by setting aside a people with prophets and with kings and different things is he's like, man, could there just be a people that understands my master plan and like enters into this thing and experiences the joy of me? And he wants to be their king. And then they say, no, we don't want you as our king. We want a real king, a king like the world has. And so then they put Saul in place, right? And that doesn't go so well. And so God works with them and then gives them a good, like a righteous king. David comes after, et cetera, et cetera. But the whole thing that I want to show you here is that God's plan was always that he would share his glory with a group of people that would be willing to not live for this world, but to live for him and to understand, again, that his ways are perfect and his heart is perfect and that he's got something that he's doing here and that we're invited to connect with him through this thing of trust. And even to this day, he's scanning the earth, looking to and fro for hearts and lives that would be willing to give themselves to him. Now, what we see is right in the middle of all this, Jesus breaks in on the scene. So humanity is not doing well without God. At just the time when it's probably perfect— well, not probably. When it is perfect, otherwise he would have done it at another time. Jesus busts on the scene. And the thing that Jesus is showing is humanity is in a perfect place to understand that they need a savior. Humanity has now seen enough cycles of, man, we don't know how to do this on our own, that it's primed to have the savior come and to have many believe in him. And so Jesus comes on the scene and he ends up living this life that's totally the opposite of what we would expect for God to live in flesh. He comes as a baby. That's weird. Right? He comes to not a rich family, but a poorer family. Like they don't even have, you know, they can't, they, they travel home and they don't have a house to stay in. They stay in an inn, but it's not even in the inn because it's oversold. They stay in like the, you know, the place where all the animals are being kept. Jesus is born in that place. The first people to, to recognize him are shepherds. This is not, you know, the prophets. This is not the scholars. It's the shepherds that find him in the manger. There's so many things about his life that are totally upside down, and he lives this crazy life where he's walking around telling people that the way that God would have us to live now is one where we lay down our life for the sake of those around us. This whole desire that he has for us to act like him and be like him and love like him and to participate in his purposes, what that looks like for us now is to lay down our lives in a way where even other people can abuse you and you don't fight for the justice that is truly yours. Right? He says somebody comes up and and whacks you on the cheek. Like, turn to them and give them the other one. That's not, that's not you fighting for your own rights by any stretch of the imagination, right? Like, that is you leaning into the abuse uh, of humanity in that moment. It's a pretty crazy thing. He says, if somebody asks for your cloak, your coat, give them your tunic too. It's like, oh, you, you want my coat? Like, how about everything? You know, how about you take my socks, my shoes, my pants, like take it all. 
Jesus gets really extreme, and he models and he displays this life that's totally upside down. Like, don't pursue the things of the world. Like, don't run after money and, like, riches like the pagans do. Don't do that stuff. What it looks like for you to look like God and to participate in this whole thing that he's got going for humanity, it looks like this type of a life. And he lays out this thing where you're like, wait, what? And then the thing culminates with Jesus dying a brutal death on a cross to lay down his life for all of humanity. God incarnate, born as a baby, grows up. Then the, the culmination of it after discipling a few people for three years is he dies on a cross and and pays for the sins of humanity. But one of the coolest things about the cross of Christ itself is the cross of Christ also shows the image of God. It also displays his nature. What do we see about the nature of who God is in the cross of Christ? The most obvious one that we talk about the most is you see the love of God. You see the Father sending his son into the world to do what only he can do, which is reconcile humanity back to himself. The whole plan of Christ to come as a savior was, you think back to that original intention of God where he says, I want everybody to live, live one with me. I want everybody to know the joy of no, knowing my nature and what it looks like to live as one with me. And not just that, everybody to know the joy of what it looks like to live with my creation as I empower them to love and forgive and do all this stuff with one another. You think about all of that, the sharing of God's nature, the sharing of his love, all of this in original creation, and then you see the cross of Christ where Jesus has to come to pay the penalty, and the love of God is so extreme in that moment where he allows his son to be killed by his very creation to restore us back to a place of holiness where we can have oneness with him again. So the love of God for sure is on crazy display in the cross of Christ. The way the Apostle Paul talks about this is he says, some people, some great people, will die for good people. Like, an exceptional person on the earth, man, you will, you'll lay down your life to, to protect people or protect your family or whatever it is. We have stories about people who have done amazing things to protect good people. He's like, but Christ came and he laid down his life for a bunch of people that were rejecting and spitting on him. Like, that is the love of God displayed in great majesty. But you know what else is displayed in the cross of Christ? Is God's ultimate sense of justice. It's so interesting because we see that, that Jesus teaches us to not fight for our own personal justice. Right? Like he gets spit on and he doesn't go like, hey, like I created that saliva. <laughs> I created you. Why, why are you spitting on me? Like that's not... That's not right. There's so many times where he could have just said, hey, that's not right. What you're doing right now? Yeah, that's not right. He didn't, he didn't fight for his, his own justice, and he actually never taught us to do that either. But the crazy thing is, in the cross of Christ, you see that justice is a core part of his heart. 
And so there's this strange thing where he's teaching us not to fight for our own, but he's also making a declaration, declaration in the largest and most grand sense that it is very important that for people who are doing wrong, that there be an account for that thing. He shows himself a righteous king who cares about justice. You know, lands, even now, in the earth thrive when they're under justice and they decay when they're not. When they're under injustice, society crumbles. When they're under justice, it thrives. In God's kingdom, he is a king of justice. In fact, in the Psalms, in Psalm 89, it says, your arm is endowed with power. Your hand is strong. Your right hand exalted. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. This is the cross of Christ in the Psalms. Righteousness and justice, they're the foundation of your throne. They, they characterize the base of his rulership. His rulership rests on righteousness and justice. But love and faithfulness go before him. And so what you see in the cross of Christ is this collision nature of God that's so profound where his righteousness and his justice and his love and his mercy are poured out at the exact same moment and displayed in beautiful splendor in Jesus. How do you both have justice and mercy at the same time? Mercy by its very nature is you don't get what you deserve. So how is God both just and merciful at the same moment? The cross of Christ. Jesus comes down and does for humanity what humanity could not do for itself. And Jesus displays this crazy life where he basically makes this statement throughout his whole life and certainly with the cross where he says, the life that I have for you to live is one where ultimate justice is entrusted into my hands and your life, you go forth living in a way where you lay down your life completely. This is what faith looks like. You know how Abraham believed and it was credited to him righteousness? Now what faith looks like in God is that we take Jesus for his word when he says there will be another life. There is something beyond this world. You're not created for this world. You're created now for another world that will satisfy all of those deep longings that I told you where we experience that inner thing that can just never get settled. Yeah, that's because we're aliens in this world and we're now created for another world. And so what, the, what faith looks like in Jesus now is to lay down our lives for the sake of others, not demand personal justice for ourselves, and to lay down our life in love for other people. And faith looks like living this crazy, flipped, upside-down life that Jesus modeled for us, not seeking our own happiness, but living to display his glory on the earth. And the reason why the resurrection is so crazy and why Paul says, without the resurrection, we're the most to be pitied of anybody out there. Like, if you're a Christian... And you don't have the resurrection, man, like, I feel bad for you. That's basically what Paul is saying. He's like, if this whole thing's a sham, 
and at the end we're not resurrected with Jesus on the other side, this thing sucks. I feel bad for you, and you should feel bad for me. That's what Paul says. And why was Paul saying that? The life he lived was the same life that Jesus lived. If there's no resurrection of Jesus, we should pity Jesus too. Wait, what? You were born in a stable, and then you grew up a carpenter's son, and then you lived three years, you know, with some disciples that couldn't get it and then died, and that's it? Like, wait, what? Jesus should be pitied too if there's no resurrection. The reason, one of many of the reasons why the resurrection is so profound and so powerful is because if we're living the life that communicates that God is exactly who he says that he is, if we're living the life that is laid down, that's modeled after Jesus, then it'll be a life where you look at it and you go, man, you better hope there's a resurrection. Because you're doing a bunch of stuff that you wouldn't be doing if there wasn't a resurrection. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says this, Why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ our Lord. If I fought with wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? What was he fighting with wild beasts for? <laughs> like trying to disciple the beast? Like what's going on there? If the dead are not raised, let us ink, eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Let's party. Let's do all the stuff that's out there to live this life the fullest we can. If there's no resurrection on the other side, and there's no moment where we stand before the resurrected Jesus and give account for our life where he goes, wow, you lived in faith. You know how I know you lived in faith? Look at the evidence of your life. You lived for another world. You must have believed the things that Jesus said. So there's this, kind, there's this recognition that the, the joy that we have in this world primarily comes from the joy of another world. It doesn't mean that we can't enjoy a good meal or go see a sunset and marvel in his beauty or experience love in this earth and go, wow, like what a gift. But you know, like even that love that we experience in this world, it's such a minor fraction. It's such a tiny, it's such a tiny bit of who God really is and what he really intended for us. Like the greatness of the greatest relationship that we can experience down here. You know, like for me, a great marriage, like my great marriage you know, like moments with my wife where we just feel like we're one. That's, that's so far from what he intended. And the joy and the hope and the, and the peace that Paul has is this one that's totally anchored in the reality of the resurrection. 
where he's like, you know why I can have crazy joy when I'm laying down my life and like standing before courts and getting accused of things I didn't do and my life is, you know, wrestling with wild beasts and I'm shipwrecked and all that stuff. It's not because he enjoys all that stuff. Right? It's because he looks forward and he goes, because I'm not living for this world. Because of the reality of the resurrection, I'm not trying down here for that stuff. Let's let that one settle in for a second, right? He's not, he's not trying to do it so well down here that he's got, like, you know, enough to feed his, his inner joy and, and stuff like that. He's like, he's all in for this thing. He's like, no, 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 I believe what Jesus said. And I've seen the resurrected Christ. And so he's living in a way that makes sense if there's a resurrection and doesn't make any sense if there's not. Jesus promised us that this world would never satisfy. It's not necessarily that your Christianity is so broken if you can't get to a place of full satisfaction in God. You know why? Because we live in a time where we're in this crazy earthly body. It's got tons of stuff going on in it that, that makes it hard for us to connect with God. We're living in a world that's sending us wild messages all the time and what's true and what's not and what will give life and what won't. We're, we're like, we're in it deep. And the the aspiration of our Christian life is that we experience oneness of God and all the things that we'll experience post-resurrection now, and we go after them hard. We go after healing. We go after the revelation of God. We go after perfect relationships with the people in our lives. We go after all of these things, but it's really smart for us to do that knowing that we're just not going to get there. Right? We're, Jesus said, like, the poor will always be with you. Right? Does that mean we just stop caring about the poor? No. We, like, fight, and we, we do everything that we can to try to eradicate poverty. But the starting point is we're ultimately living for another world. And so the resurrection is so powerful because it's the promise of a better future even in a place like that where we feel like we can never get to a place where we're satisfied, where we look around the world and we see, man, this place is jacked. And like, what do we do about it? And it's like, yes, yes. We're living for another world. All of this, you know, in the Psalms, it says even darkness is light to him. And in Romans, I think it's chapter five, it might be chapter four, but it talks about how if the glory of God is revealed even in sin, should we just go on sinning that the glory of God be, like, revealed? What he's talking about, I really resonated with this. I was like, wow, when I look at the world and I see wickedness, the reason why it detests me and the reason why I see wickedness is because somebody has created in me a sense of justice and righteousness that I immediately recognize when I see this stuff. 
I know that God is a God of justice and righteousness because I look at the world and I hate what's going on there and it feels detestable and it feels counter to the way that I was created. And so even in that, God's glorified. Even in something like that, his nature is revealed, which is crazy. Even darkness shines his light. But man, there's, there's a whole world on the other side of this thing that we ultimately get to live for. And the reason why we get to have that hope, the reason why we get to live in a way that doesn't make sense down here is because Jesus showed that he was the lion over death in the grave, that he was the conquering king, that he wasn't going to allow darkness to triumph in the ultimate sense. And he, it calls him the first fruits of the resurrection, meaning that he's the one that's blazing the trail for all of us. And so the, the, today is the celebration of the fact of history that Jesus didn't just rot in a grave. Today is the celebration that he proved everything that he said was true. He proved that that collision of justice and love on the cross, justice and mercy and righteousness, that collision was who God really is and that that will reign and rule for all of history, that that's the type of kingdom that he runs, that that's the type of king that he is, truly. The reason why we can celebrate and say, I know that Jesus is the type of king who cares about justice and righteousness, mercy and love and peace is because we watched him display it in splendor in his life and on the cross, but not just there. Then he bursts forth out of the grave in a way where wickedness cannot hold him down. That even in what appears to be humanity's worst hour, even when it seems all is lost, like, literally, it seems like all is lost. Like, God comes incarnate and then dies. At that very moment is his majesty and his splendor displayed in its purest sense in history. And then it's the proof that we get to follow in this path that as we lay down our life in a similar way, it's not all in vain. That when we determine in our hearts to live a holy life, one where his eyes are searching to and fro throughout the earth and they stop on us, and he goes, wow, there's somebody who believes me. Righteousness credited to that person. Like, we get to move his heart. He gets to look down and see, contrary to all of this stuff, the body we live in, the craziness of the world, that we're not living for those other things, but we're living for him. He gets to stop and see, like, that person there's no way that person will live in vain. There's no way that anything that that person chooses will, will end up in, in disappointment or shame or, or as a loss because he remembers it all that we're all living for another world. And all of this hinges around his resurrection, that he prevails, that he shares his glory with every tribe, tongue, and nation that once again, rather than just selecting a small people group and saying, oh man, I hope this remnant stays pure to me, he busts that thing open and he says, 
every tribe, every tongue, every nation, by the power of my spirit, in the power of my resurrection, I want my original intention for all of humanity to respond to me, for all of them to come back and thrive under my rulership. And all of this is anchored in the resurrection. I want to share with you just quickly one thing that I found in Scripture today that I thought was really cool. Doesn't totally fit into the message, but I have to share it because I thought it was cool. So, right after Jesus' resurrection in John 21, there's this famous account of a second calling of Peter. Jesus shows up. Actually, Peter takes all the, the disciples and friends and stuff out to go fishing. They don't know what to do after Jesus died. And so they're out fishing, doing what they used to do. And uh, they're not doing very well. And this guy on the shore, who they, don't, they can't recognize, says, throw your nets over to the other side of the boat. And they throw the nets over to the other side of the boat. And immediately they get this massive catch, 153 fish. That's what the fish is, what the, the Bible says. Pretty specific. 153 fish. And immediately John, who calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved, which is pretty awesome, immediately John recognizes and says, that's our Lord. And Peter freaks out, jumps out of the boat, and swims to the shore. Really cool. The reason why John immediately recognizes him is because when he called them at the original calling of the disciples, uh, th there was something very similar. They're trashed from fishing all night. They didn't get anything. And then they're about to come in, and Jesus says, actually, like, push back out. Go throw your nets into the deep. And it's like the worst, you know, in terms of understanding fishing. They were doing everything wrong wrong time of day, like wrong place to throw the nets, like all that stuff. And he goes, okay, master, if you tell me to. And they go, and here's the cool part that I never noticed before. Talking about, so this is in the context of what I was just talking about, where God longs for every tribe and every tongue and every nation to be welcomed into his kingdom, where his family can be as large as it can possibly be for anybody who would call upon the name of the Lord to be saved and welcomed back into their original intention. In the first account, their nets break. In the second account, the Bible specifically says that even though they had a massive catch, their nets didn't break. Super interesting. It, it explicitly said, like, they're bursting in the first one, and explicitly says, like, they should be bursting in the second one, but they're not. The only thing that's different about these two accounts is one is pre-resurrection, cross and resurrection, and the other one is post-cross and resurrection. See, the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ made way for all of the fish to be captured and to be brought in to the boat. Remember that the analogy here is that he says to Peter, he says, I will make you a fisher of men. Right? Like the, the analogy or the, the imagery that he's using there is, Peter, it's your job to go out into the world and to catch and to bring in my people and bring them into my family, bring them into my house. 
And in the first one, Peter's nets snap. In the second one, post-cross and resurrection, the nets hold strong. There is a there is a power and a grace that is released in the earth right now for us to accomplish the will of God in a way that was unprecedented for thousands and thousands of years before Jesus did this very thing. I think we forget that sometimes. I think sometimes we, we forget how privileged we are to be able to live on the other side of the cross and resurrection of Christ. That part of what he has promised in this hour is that a great harvest of people, a great mass and multitude of every tribe and every nation will be brought into his house and the nets won't snap. Meaning that he's given us everything that we need in order to do this. The power of the Holy Spirit, the connection that we're able to have with one another through the love and forgiveness that we can have for one another the holy lifestyle that we're now empowered to live by the power of his spirit, the mission that we have, the understanding of his gospel, all of these things never existed before, and they exist right now. And the invitation for us is to live in this new mission that he had, old mission, but new power for the old mission to be accomplished. Not living for ourselves, not living for today but living for that day where the same thing that happened to Jesus, where he was resurrected, death could not triumph over him, happens for us. And so on Easter Sunday, on Resurrection Sunday, I've got to imagine that there's people in here who have never heard God's master plan that have never heard, oh, wow, like, that's why the world's in shambles right now. That's why I have these longings in me. That's why my heart cries out for something different and something more than can be satisfied. I thought that was me. For some of you, the Lord was working on your heart as we were talking about this. And I'll tell you what happens a lot in moments like this is that there's something called the altar call where it's like, if that's you and God's working on you, come on forward. I'm not going to do that. And the reason why I'm not going to do that is because the evidence of wanting to do this is by pursuing a life that Jesus modeled out himself. Us living a life where we start with a moment like this and we say, Lord, I think this might be true. Would you show me? Would you show me what this really looks like? Would you show me for me how I'm caught up in your master plan and what you would require of me? That is such a great first step. That is such a great moment between you and God. And God will come and God will be faithful to your seeking. One of the things it says uh, through the Apostle Paul, I believe it was, is that, uh, how does it go? 
It's like faith is knowing that God exists and knowing that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. That second one I have seen so many times in my life proved out. My whole testimony is a testimony of God honoring and rewarding those who earnestly seek him. And so my invitation for all of us based in the resurrection is that we would go hard after earnestly seeking Jesus and the life that he has modeled for us to live here and now because it's a unique window. On this whole thing of earnestly seeking him, I was reminded during worship of one of my favorite analogies of, of how God works. And it is an Easter egg hunt. So for the people that have been going to this church a lot, they know that this is one of my favorite analogies. And I can say Easter, Mama, because I actually mean like the egg hunt, not like, you know, okay. <clears throat> so what happens in an Easter egg hunt? In an Easter egg hunt, the parents go and they set little treasures around the garden in hidden spots. And they go and they're like, okay, I'm gonna, I did this this weekend. It was really fun. You know, you like hide it just behind the tree, but like some pink of the egg showing, you know, because my girls are like five and six, right? I'm not a mean dad. I don't like climb up the tree and like put it, you know. I could, but I don't. I'm conscious of the age that my kids are, and I hide it just enough that it'll be really fun for them because they know I've put these little treasures around the garden in just the right place where it's hard, but it's not impossible. That's the whole design of an Easter egg hunt. This is exactly how God works. It says in the scripture that it's the, the glory of God to conceal a matter. And then it's the glory of kings to search it out. Like, he, he is magnified and seen beautiful and, and gets joy out of this process where he hides his mysteries all over the thing, all over the place. And then he goes, hey kids, I promise that if you seek, you're going to find, and it's going to be awesome. It's the glory of kings to search this out. So it's exactly an Easter egg hunt, right? He has the, the pink side of the egg sticking out for those of us who are kind of like five and six in the Lord. And it's like, oh, I could, oh yeah, it's right there, right? When they're like one or two, I would like literally drop the egg in the middle of the room, you know, because they're like fumbling around looking like drunk people and like fall on the egg. And it's like, oh, it's right there. And God is so perfectly capable of setting this thing up in a way where you're not going to find if you don't seek. You will not find if you don't seek. But as soon as you determine, God, it could be true that, like, you really reward those who earnestly seek you. I'm going to go seek. I'm going to play this cosmic Easter egg thing that's going on here. And I'll tell you, the prizes that you find behind God's trees are a whole lot better than a hard-boiled egg with a pink shell. What he hides is the best for his people, which is the understanding of his nature. 
He hides these moments where you look for him, you find him, you see him for who he really is, and it totally changes who you are. You get to experience that first part of creation that we talked about where he intended for us to walk in the cool of the garden with him every day and to learn from him and to stare at him and be like, man, I know who I am because I know who you are. I'm created in your image and now I see your image and I'm like, wow, that makes sense for me. Like, I get it now. And that's what he hides. He hides these pieces of his, his image where you look around and you, you search through the scriptures and one day he unveils something for you. You're like, oh my gosh. Like, that is beautiful. I didn't know that you were that. And, and then you see how that changes and shapes who you are. That is like the joy of our life. So as we leave this place to go watch kids run around and do Easter egg hunts, I would invite you to just determine, I'm not going to make you come forward. I'm not going to make you raise your hand. Whether you're old in the Lord or young in the Lord, let's get caught up in this thing and let's like earnestly seek him. And as we see him, let's not waste any of the glory that's been revealed to us. And what I mean by that is as you see him and as you know him, let it transform your life in a way that it's evident that you live for a resurrected world, not for this one. That's the evidence of our faith. Not how well we can quote scripture, not how long we pray, but that we live in a way that shows that we believe in this invisible God who lived totally upside down and totally contrary to what makes sense if this is it. So let me pray for us, then we'll move on. Father, I thank you for your master plan. God, I thank you that all of your ways are perfect. And God, I just pray now for anybody who has never stepped into that place of formally and explicitly asking you to reveal yourself to them and to stepping into the life of seeking your glory. God, I pray that there would be many in this room who for the first time, or maybe the second or third, enter into that life where they get lost in the knowledge of you, where they get lost in this process of seeking and seeking you out, God. And I pray, God, that there would be great joy as we seek you, God. I pray that there'd be that same joy that we see on the face of the kids where they're just like, I know that there's a treasure here. I know it. And they're just looking around, running around. And then when they find it, it's such pure joy. God, I pray that there'd be joy in the seeking and I pray that there'd be joy in the finding. And God, I pray that there'd be many here who step back into our created purpose of being caught up in your mission, doing the things that you do, thinking the things that you think, and being able to respond to life in a way where we have the very life force of our Savior flowing through our bodies. 
Jesus, we celebrate the life that you lived, the life laid down, the cross that you endured. And then today, on Resurrection Sunday, the way that you overcame, the way that you declared once and for all that the devil will have no hold for one moment longer than you allow him to operate, that yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory, that your reign is the lasting reign, that we will get to, as we put our trust in you and follow you in your ways, as we live the life of death that you lived down here, that you promised resurrection life, just like you. So give us courage to seek you and give us courage to not squander even an ounce of the glory of God that you give us as revelation, that we live lives fully laid down for you. We give you the glory and the honor. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, y'all.